Hello, my name is Frank Yotso, and today at the Crawford School, we're very fortunate to welcome Rachel Kite, uh, who is Vice President for Sustainable Development at the World Bank, as well as Professor uh, at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Rachel, welcome. Hi, Frank. Thank you for the invitation. The uh, World Bank has released a report uh, entitled uh, Why We Need to Avoid uh, Four Degrees of Warming. Uh, can you tell us about some of the findings of the report in terms of the impacts from climate change and the risks? Yeah, so we, uh, it's unusual, I suppose, for an economics-based institution to commission uh, the science, but we, we felt we didn't really have uh, good enough answers for some of our client countries who were asking you know, for help in adaptation. But you know, the question we had to ask ourselves is, well, to what are we adapting? Um, is it a two-degree, three-degree, four-degree, five-degree world? Um, and that would mean perhaps very different things. And the report is quite chilling, I think, because, well, first of all, it says that we're headed for a four-degree world by the, by the end of the century. And at four degrees, we start to lose enormous amounts of cropland in sub-Saharan Africa, 35%. Uh, we start to see sea level rise of half a metre or a metre, which will affect a number of coastal cities, particularly in this region, uh, in Asia. Um, and of course, with the rates of urbanisation at the moment, that becomes a bigger problem. Uh, we also see that the water-stressed countries will become even more water-stressed and more people will be living under water stress. Um, so hot parts of the world are going to get hotter and uh, wetter parts of the world will get wetter. And of course, the extreme weather events that we've been seeing are expected to continue in their intensity uh, and continue uh, to, to gain in frequency as well. So that poses obvious challenges for development. Um, what are the implications for the role of the World Bank uh, in future as we may see uh, more climate change impacts unfold? Well, I think the report forced us to, um, to re reassess uh, what we're doing. And so we're involved in, in two real processes at the moment. One is going back through the approaches that we take to our sectoral work, um, to our work in transport, in energy, in, in agriculture, and really asking ourselves the question, you know, is everything that we're doing building resilience at the community and country level? And uh, is everything we're doing uh, reducing emissions to the extent that we can? But secondly, even if we did all of that, the World Bank is but one small part of the landscape of development. Um, we have to do something way beyond that, not least because, you know, uh, about 20 countries account for most of global emissions. And some of those countries are not our clients, they are our shareholders. And so uh, the president of the World Bank has asked us uh, to think about the least number of most important things that need to be done to attack emissions. And we've started looking at um, what those actions would be and, and where the World Bank Group could catalyse them. And the key word that we're hearing more and more about is, of course, green growth. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, well, can you give us some insight into the World Bank's current thinking uh, about how uh, environmental protection and the reorientation of the economy towards low carbon sources uh, can be brought uh, in line with the growth objective that is, of course, generally overriding in yes. the developing world? Well, I think that I mean, if, if the four degree report um, is the threat, um, we, there's nothing in the four degree report to suggest that this is unstoppable. The solutions are, are known, they just need to be uh, deployed. Um, so that's the threat. The opportunity is shifting the growth path to one that is cleaner, greener, and more in inclusive. And the, the issues there are taking out the inefficiencies in the current economic system. Um, for example, removing harmful fossil fuel subsidies that do very little for the global environment or the local environment, they do very little for the poor, although that's not always well understood within the electorate. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, pricing, uh, pricing the things that need to be priced. So we're very interested in both carbon taxes and market-based carbon mechanisms and speeding up their adoption across countries. Um, and then I think the really difficult thing is avoiding lock-in. So especially when one's building infrastructure, uh, one has to sort of think about uh, the infrastructure over the long run and making that climate resilient or making that low-carbon infrastructure. And there will be an upfront capital cost often to climate-proof it or to choosing the more expensive but cleaner option um, but the uh, over time that that benefit will be the benefit of that will be will be found so how do we bridge the sort of long-term economic uh, clarity with the short-term political cycle so we have to we have to as an international community find those additional sources of financing to fund the gap between uh, business as usual and uh, a sort of greener business as usual uh, and that's very difficult in a world where there's still about a trillion dollars of infrastructure that does not get financed every year yeah. In Australia, climate change policy has been a very big topic for a number of years. Uh, we have uh, legislation that provides for a price on carbon, and then it itself has created enormous amounts of political heat. Uh, I think you've, spend, you've been spending a lot of today uh, up at Parliament House. Um, can you tell us your impressions uh, about the Australian debate? Well, I mean, you know, it's difficult as an international civil servant to comment on the domestic debate, but one of the points that I've been making on both sides of the aisle is that um, increasingly we are seeing uh, the adoption by countries of some form of uh, market-based mechanism around carbon. Um, and that now we have more than 30 countries working in what we call a partnership for market readiness. So that includes the European Union, China, Australia, Korea, California, Chile, Mexico. So we're seeing really sizable economies in the world adopting um, carbon-based uh, market mechanisms. And whereas 20 years ago, I think we all thought that it would be a global carbon price and that that would emerge from a global liquid carbon market coming from the top down, we now realize that that's not going to happen. And what you're seeing is a market being built from the bottom up. And within that community of countries who are experimenting and building markets and within countries that are looking at their need to do so in the very near future, people look internationally at Australia as an example that they want to understand and follow. So while this is a domestic hot potato, internationally Australia is seen as a leader. Mm. Now to finish off with, here at Crawford School we have a large number of graduate students, many of them intensely interested in the issues around climate change and climate change policy. Any message uh, for people who are back studying in order to make a greater difference afterwards? Well, to uh, coin a phrase, you have to be the change you want to be. Um, I think my boss, uh, President Jim Kim of the World Bank, asks us a question, and he asks leaders that he meets uh, the same question, and it is, uh, imagine that in 40 years' time, um, your children or your grandchildren come to you and say, the following, you know, what will be your answer? And the question that we expect, if we don't act now, our children to ask us will be, what did you do when you knew? So each of the students needs to have an answer to that question. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you.